And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. I love it. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. This is our, our series working through the Gospel of Luke, Certainty in a World of Doubt. And the title of this weekend's message is Live Ready. Live Ready. Luke chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 35 through 59. There's an old story about a florist who mixed up two orders one busy day. One arrangement went to a business, a new business that was opening, and the other went to a family who had a death. Oh, no, that's right. The man with the new business came in ticked off. The flowers that you got delivered to my opening day said, rest in peace. (laughs) The florist said, you think you're mad? You should have seen the people who just left. A bouquet was delivered to their family's funeral that said, good luck in your new location. And so take a look at your sermon notes there. Jesus spent much of his ministry, Jesus spent much much of his ministry teaching his disciples about their their ultimate future new location, the kingdom to come and their eternal citizenship in it. Our hope in the hereafter, what you believe about what happens when you die for all eternity has a major impact, major effect on how you're going to live your life right here, right now. And so our hope in the hereafter has practical application in the here and now. The Lord's promised return is the Christian's blessed hope, Titus 2.13. That's what it's called, blessed hope. The hope here is not wishful thinking. It's confident, joyful expectation. When the Bible talks about hope, that's what it's talking about, confident, joyful expectation, what we hope for in the future. The time of, the, the time of Jesus' return and the manner in which he will come are highly debated issues in our day and time. And... Uh, Studies of the events of his return are called studies of the last things, or, big term here, eschatology. Eschatology. Turn to the person next to you. This is a new word, maybe a brand new word for you. Let's see how well you're doing in learning this new word. Can you say eschatology? Eschatology. Turn to the person next to you and say, hey, we're going to talk a little bit about eschatology. Real quick, do that. Turn to the person next to you. Eschatology. It's the study... The studies of last things. Now, the point of the Bible's teaching on the second coming of Christ is not how to find that day. So there, there's that tendency for us to have the, the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other hand and try to, try to pin the tail on the Antichrist. You know, there's, it, it, I know it's kind of crazy, and people do that, and, and people get all excited about that, but that's not the main purpose of the Bible. Um, the point of the Bible's teaching on the second coming of Christ is not, not how to find that great day, but how that great day will find us. How that great day will find us. And in fact, that day is going to be so glorious, absolutely glorious, that it tells us in 1 John 3, 1 through 3, it tells us that for anyone to hope for it, for anyone to hope for it, not, not to get there, but just to want it, it will transform their lives. So you kind of see where we're going with our study. Look at the outline there. What, what hope does everlasting life hold for us? We're going to talk about that. I think this is what the text tells us. And then how to live ready 
and then why we should live ready. What, how has to do with the quality of our lives, and then the, uh, the why has to do with the motivation, what should motivate our lives. That's where we're headed. But what I want to do is I want to begin by praying First John uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Would you bow your heads with me before we dive into this study? It's a pretty intense uh, study here this weekend. So we need a lot of help, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. And, and Father God, how great is the love that you have lavished upon us that by grace through faith in Christ, we should be called your children. That is amazing. And that is what we are. We know that when you appear, we shall be like you, for we shall see you as you are. And that day will be so glorious that those who hope for it will purify themselves just as you are pure. So through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, show us Show us the hope that everlasting life holds for us and how and why we should live ready for it. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and holy name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. So let's, uh, let's work through the text. It's a, it's a tough text. I'll try not to comment too much. There's a couple of things in there where we'll take a break just for a moment because I need to bring some explanation. Remember, this is in the context of, uh, of the parable of the rich fool, uh, just truly a favorite verse of mine was verse 32 of chapter 12 where it says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And then after that, he talks about the generosity we'll have in our lives as a result of that. And then he finishes up verse 34 by saying, for where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. And so we begin reading in verse 35. He says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, truly, I, I say to you, he will dress himself. This is quite a spectacular verse here. This is amazing. And the he is Jesus. So when he comes back and he finds us ready, living ready for his return, as it says here, he, it says that he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. This is Jesus serving us at the great feast. Verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or in the third, so this is late at night, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants Exclamation mark. Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. By the way, Son of Man is how Jesus often referred to himself. He's actually speaking of himself. And then, of course, I love this because Peter's a little bit babbled by this. He's like, oh, oh my goodness, this sounds... Uh, a bit uh, frightening, and what, you know, I we want to make sure that we're ready. Peter said, "Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all?" And the Lord said, "Who then is the faithful and wise manager?" So the Lord is responding to him. He says, "Hey, it's self-explanatory. You're going to either fit into the category of being the faithful servant, and then in a few verses, he's going to talk about the unfaithful servant. So all of us will fit into one of those two categories." So who then is a faithful, wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. 
Truly, I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. Stop there just for a minute. You've got to look up here because I need to talk a little bit before we head into the next uh, section. Now, what we're going to talk about here is this is a picture of Jesus that makes people uncomfortable. And so I'm just, I'm going to forewarn you in this. Now, you, you know this because we teach it here. There's a balance in our, in our understanding of, of, of who God is. God is great, but he's also good. God is powerful, but he's also personal. God is transcendent, but he's also imminent. You have to maintain that balance between the two. When you swing to one extreme or the other, which is very common in America today, uh, we, we get into imbalance, and, and we don't know who God is, and then God becomes a figment of our imagination. So this idea of God being love and justice, so love is that aspect of his nature that seeks our justification. But then there's that other aspect of he, uh, who Jesus is, and that's his, his justice, his holiness. It's that aspect of his nature that demands punishment for sin. Now, what we're going to talk about here, it, it, only if your God can outrage you and make you struggle will you know that you worship the real God of the Bible and not a figment of your imagination. What I'm about to say here is going to make you struggle, and it may even outrage you. This is red letter in the Bible. This is Jesus speaking to us. And uh, Jesus is going to go fight club, Okay? He's been going Fight Club for a few chapters, though, if you didn't notice. But he's going to really open up a can here, if you know what I mean. Um, some of you just kind of went right over your head like, what is he talking about? <laughs> open up a can? What is he? What, are we going to eat something here? No, we're not going to eat anything here. Something's going to happen that's going to disturb you a bit. And... Um, this is, this is not some docile, neutered portrait of Jesus. This is not the Mr. Rogers Jesus, okay? Everybody's friend in the neighborhood, so to speak. This is more like the um, William Wallace Braveheart Jesus, okay? That's the one I actually prefer, but, the, but there's a balance in understanding this. And listen to what he says here in verse 45. But if that servant, now he's making a contrast. He, he talked about the faithful servant. Now he's talking about really the unfaithful servant. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That's a far cry from you're fired. I mean, where's the you're fired as opposed to I'm going to cut you in pieces. What? That's harsh. These are from the words of Jesus. I think he's speaking, he, this is a parable. It's a, an analogy. He's pushing a point. He better get the point. And, uh, and so this first one would be classified as the defiant servant because the next one in verse 47, he says, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. Well, he's not going to get cut up, but this time he's just going to get a severe beating. Well, thank you very much. Um, that's the more of the distracted servant. So you got the defiant servant, you got the distracted servant, and then in verse 48, you have more of the darkened servant. This is the servant who's kind of a bit clueless. Verse 48, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. 
So you got one that's getting cut up. You got one that gets a severe beating. This one only gets the light beating. Everyone to whom much was, is given of him, much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. So to whom much is given, much is required. That, that's, that's heavy, what he just said there. Something, something certainly to think about. We'll walk through it in our notes to try to unpack it and understand it because um, Jesus isn't finished yet because listen to what he says. I came to cast fire on the earth. The word fire there really represents judgment. So I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. So it's not time for it. So really what he's saying between this verse and then the next verse, verse 50, he's talking about, this is his second coming he's talking about. I came to cast fire on the earth. Second coming, he's going to bring judgment. But verse 50 he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. That's his first coming. So he's making a distinction between his first coming and second coming. First coming, first coming he came to, to bear our judgment. The fire was placed upon him. Second coming, he will bring judgment. That's what he's saying. And just when you thought it was safe to to go out, okay? Because it's gonna get still ugly because verse 51, he says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Yeah, Jesus, yeah, yeah, peace on earth. I mean, isn't that what we did? We celebrated that at Christmas time. I mean, it's, it's back in chapter two when you were born and peace on earth, goodwill to men. Yeah, yeah, he goes, no. That's not why I came. You misunderstood what I was talking about there. Luke 2.14, peace among those with whom he is pleased. He's talking about those that have God's grace. He's talking about how, who he is. He's, he's very polarizing, and what he says is very clear. He's, in essence, he's drawing the line in the sand. You're either for me or against me. You're either on my team or you're on the other team, and that's the wrong team. And there's no middle ground is what he's saying here. And I demand ultimate loyalty to who I am and, and what I've called you to. That's what he's saying here. He said, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And then he moves into kind of a new section here, verse 54. He also said uh, to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say, at once a shower is coming. Unless you live in Phoenix. <laughs> I mean, there's, a, there's clouds all around us. Do we get any rain? Uh, did you get any rain here this last week where you live? We didn't get hardly any, okay? Not complaining. Okay, I am. But I'm looking at this going, yeah, we see clouds all the time, especially this time of year. But a shower, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. That's more like us, okay, scorching heat. And he says this, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Hey, you're very skilled in the temporal things. You make more of the temporal than you do the eternal. You're clueless when it comes to the eternal. 
you need to beef it up a little bit on your theology. You, you, you don't know about the coming judgment. You should be more in touch with the coming judgment than you are the coming rains or the coming heat and be more concerned about that than, than the temporal is what he's saying. And then he talks about verses 57 through 59. He talks about real settling with your accuser. God, basically God is our accuser. We all stand before him guilty. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he's saying, hey, settle your account before God. By the way, the only way you can do that, let me just tell you, you know this, is through Jesus. But you settle it now because he came to bear our judgment because eventually he's going to come and he's going to bring judgment and you will face his judgment. That's the idea here. Let me read. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right as you go with your accuser before the magistrate? Make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is the word of the Lord to us. Okay. Whoa, yeah, that's my kind of text. You guys ready? Okay, man, I'm, I'm excited about this. This is good stuff. This is heavy-duty stuff. I love the challenge. And so here's the first thing on your notes. Uh, what hope does everlasting life hold for us? This is from the New City Catechism. I'd encourage you to get this on your phone as an app and go through each of these each and every day. They're really good. But this is question 52. This is how it's answered. It's there in your notes. It reminds us that this present fallen world is not all there is. Soon we will live with and enjoy God forever. Oh, my goodness. I, I long for that day. And, and soon we will live with and enjoy God forever. Notice this, in the new city, in the new heaven, in the new earth, where we will be fully and forever freed from all sin and will inhabit renewed resurrected bodies. Any candidates out there for new resurrected bodies? How many would like to have a new body right now? <laughs> yep. It was interesting. I don't know if you saw yesterday, but uh, Usain Bolt lost to two Americans, 100-yard dash. And he tried to retire after the Olympics this last year, but his sponsor said, no, we need to go another year. And he said he wanted to get out before the guys that he should be beating beat him. Well, guess what had happened? He's 30 years old, and you can already see that he's, uh, he's just falling apart, okay? <laughs> I wish I could fall apart like that and run the 100-yard dash in 9.7 or something like that. But, but he got beat by two American guys. And so it's, just, it's fascinating. But all of us, uh, and he's 30 years old. So it starts about 30, 33. Some of you started a little bit earlier than that. But you, your body's gonna fall apart, and guess what? We not only have new city, new heaven, new earth coming in our direction, but also renewed resurrected bodies in a renewed, restored creation. If you wanna, I would encourage you to read Revelation 21, that chapter from time to time, especially verses one through four. They are spectacular. What is in store for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus? It's just, it's amazing. I absolutely love it. So, so what is this all about? Let me see if I can bring this home to you and kind of help you to understand this. It's near the very end of The Lord of the Rings in which one of the heroes of the story, Sam Gamgee, says to Gandalf, says to him, he sees Gandalf, he says, I, I thought you were dead, but I thought I was dead. I thought I was dead also. Is everything sad gonna come untrue? I love that statement. Is everything sad? going to come untrue. Take that same question, go to the Bible and ask Jesus. And, and, and you could really see the disciples saying this. When Jesus resurrected from the grave and the disciples were just blown away, they just go, oh my goodness, you conquered sin, you conquered death, you conquered the grave. Oh, 
Jesus, we thought you were dead. We thought we were dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And Jesus responds, yes. Yes. Do you have any idea what awaits you because of your faith in me? See, that's, that's what this, what hope does the everlasting life hold for us? That's it. New city, new heaven, new earth, new bodies, renewed, restored creation. Now, keep in mind, this is not, this is not compensation for all the sin and suffering we, we experience in this life. It's total, total transformation of everything as we currently know it. Everything sad will come untrue and be all the more glorious for having once been broken and lost. Listen, everybody look up here. This is the happily ever after that you long for. You know those movies we watch and they live happily ever after? We go, oh, I love that. Not on this earth, it's not gonna happen. But in the life to come, that's what he offers us. Happily ever after. There's something in us that st- we want that. We long for that. That's it. It's, it's here. He's talking about that. It's through Jesus. It's amazing. This is like, in fact, when you take your last breath on earth and your first breath in heaven, it'll be like waking up from a horrible nightmare. Really. I mean, I, I, as a kid, I used to have some terrible nightmares. Horrible. I'm not sure what they were all from, but I, I kind of know a little bit. But, but man, I, I, this is what I would dream. I would dream that there was this, was this train. The train would run over and just basically destroy my whole family. Every family member was killed from this train running over them. And I was devastated. You know, I was just... And then I would wake up, and everything sad was untrue. Isn't that amazing? That's, but that's, that's what we're going to experience. Everything sad will come untrue. Second Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. You can write that down on your notes. Second Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. We do not lose heart. Do you ever feel like losing heart? You just kind of feel like, oh my goodness, this is, this is too hard. This is too difficult. Life, the world is so broken. This is a mess. He says, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. I always laugh when I think about that because, yep, I'm right there. I looked in the mirror this morning. I'm wasting away. Doesn't look good. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And then he says, and it's because of this. It's because our light and momentary trials. And I know, I know, if I came to you right now and there's those that have gone through, that are currently going through some devastating times in their life, if I were to say, ah, get over it, light and momentary, I wouldn't do that. But maybe down the road a little bit, I would, we could talk about it because what he's saying, our light momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This is light and momentary compared to what God has in store for us. Everything sad is gonna come untrue. Do you understand that? That's what he's saying. Therefore, we do not put our eyes, we do not fix our eyes on, the, on what is seen, but what is unseen, because what is seen is temporal. What is unseen is eternal. And so, I, that's why I love what uh, Teresa of Avila says in a, in a quote here that helps us to understand this. She says this, the first moment in the arms of Jesus is going to make a thousand years of misery on earth look, look like one night in a bad hotel. <laughs> I love it. In his arms. Everything you've ever wanted or longed for multiplied exponentially will be present 
in your heart the first moment of his embrace of you when you see him face to face, the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without you. I mean, imagine. Imagine what it would, what it would be like to stand before God and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want you to hear. That's what I want to hear. I, I love you guys. I want you to live ready. So how do we do that? How to live ready. That's the quality of our life, and then we'll talk about why live ready. That would be the motivation of our life, but here's your first uh, couple fill in the blanks. Number one, how to live ready. Be found doing what he told you to do. Be found doing what he told you to do. Verse 35a, he says, stay dressed for action. Remember the very first statement? Stay dressed for action. What does he mean by that? Well, if you look at that and study that out, he's actually saying, gird up your loins. Loins? What, What are loins? Gird them up. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Okay, maybe just to me, not to you, obviously. You didn't find humor in that. But it's like, gird up your loins, okay, whatever that means. But actually, loins meaning their, their robes. They would wear these long robes, and they weren't very mobile. And so when they're going to run, they're going to fight, they're going to get busy doing some work, what do they have to do? They have to pull it up, and they put a belt up, and they kind of cinch it up. And uh, it was the beginning of the miniskirt, I guess. But uh, <laughs> I, I didn't have to say that. I should have said that. But... Uh, but they had to bring it up so that they could become more mobile and move. So that's the idea. Be found doing what you were told to do. Stay dressed for action. But I think that Scripture is the best commentary for Scripture. I think in verse 43, it helps to, us to really understand this more. So stay dressed for action. Gird up your robe. What does that mean? Verse 43, blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So doing, yeah. Be found doing what he told you to do. What did he tell us to do? Well, we know this, that after Jesus resurrected from the grave, Acts chapter 1, Jesus hung out with his disciples for 40 days, and the Jesus, uh, his disciples came to him and said, Jesus, when are you, you going to establish your kingdom? We're waiting for your kingdom. Come on, take over. Kick these guys out. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons. Don't be preoccupied with that, but be preoccupied with this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. The word witness literally means you're going to be murdered, martyrs. You're going to give witness to me. You're going to proclaim me to the world. You're going to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel to the world. And then we also know... According to Matthew 28, the very last words of Jesus before he ascended to heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you. And then he gives this promise. There's actually two promises there. The one is his authority and power, and the other one is that, and I will always be with you, even to the very end of the age. So what are we supposed to be doing? So we are to be found doing what he told us to do. We are to be a disciple, and we are to be making disciples. That's what we're to be doing, making disciples. In fact, I don't even believe that we have a claim on his power and his presence unless we are doing what he told us to do. I've oftentimes will hear people say, well, I don't experience much of his power, his presence in my life. Are you doing what he's called you to do? And that's, that's part of that. Be found doing what he told you to do. Let me give you a, an illustration here. You are in a class that will, be, that will either make or break your career. You've taken this college class, make or break your career. You've got to pass it. You've got to get a certain score, certain grade to pass it. The entire class grade will be based on one test. 
If the test is three months from now, you can go home, kick back for at least a month. Some of you will wait until the night before the test, won't you? Because I know how some of you study. And, and maybe you'll do that. I'd probably start studying right away because I need all the help that I can get. But what if the test could be any week? What if the professor said, in fact, you got one chance, I'm going to have one test, and it's make or break, and you're not going to know when the test is. I'm not going to tell you. It could be next week, it could be in two weeks, it could be in two months, it could be in three months. Then you will have a sense of urgency about your life and you will stay dressed for action. That's the idea here. You don't know when he's coming back. You don't know when he may come back for you as an individual through death or when he comes back through his second coming. You don't know that. So what does that mean to be a disciple and to make disciples. Let me give you some fill in the blanks. There's four here. They go right along with our 5G process here at Desert Breeze of a full devotion to Christ. This is what we help people uh, walk through in becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. The first one on your notes is radical loyalty to Christ. That's what we saw in verses 49 through 53. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but division. This is really, the first G is a genuine Christian. Radical loyalty to Christ. My loyalty to Christ has, has caused me to be cussed out by family members and made fun of by coworkers. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying it's gonna create division. People aren't gonna like the fact that you love Jesus. And you gotta be okay with that. You gotta st stand up for the truth, but do that with love. It's radical loyalty to Christ. The next one is radical discernment, verses 54 through 56. He basically, he was saying you could predict the weather, but not the coming judgment. So the second G is a growing Christian. You're, you're more skilled in the eternal versus the temporal. That's what that means. So if you're a genuine Christian, you have radical loyalty to Christ, you're gonna become radical in your discernment. You're gonna be more in touch with the spiritual than you are the temporal. And then you've got radical generosity in service. We saw that, we talked about that last week. We talked about the parable of the rich fool. And uh, that's Luke 12, 21. We, we saw the generosity that should come as a result of God's blessing and generosity uh, to us, verses 32 through 33 of chapter 12. Service, by the way, it's not verse 45, the cross-reference there for service, it's actually verse 43, that's the faithful servant. The unfaithful is represented in verse 45. So you might wanna X through 45, put 43 on there. Also, verse 37 talks about how Jesus is gonna serve us, but we also know, based on Mark 10, 45, that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. So this is the giving Christian. So if you're genuine, you're gonna be growing. If you're growing, you're gonna be giving. You're gonna have radical generosity and service, but also radical awareness of future joy and justice. Future joy as far as where you're headed for all eternity. The feast, verse 37, but also justice, verses 46 through 48. Am I going too fast? You guys hanging with me? Okay. Keep writing. Keep going. So genuine growing, giving, going, going Christian, radical awareness of future joy and justice. This is a going Christian. You, you, you want to reach as many people as you can with the gospel message, and you're gonna put that on display through joy in the face of suffering. When you're suffering, they're gonna see that joy in you, and they're gonna be drawn to you, and you can tell them about Jesus, but also forgiveness in the face of persecution. You're gonna do all this for God's glory. That's the fifth G. 
All for God's glory. You're going to be rich towards God. Verse 31 of Luke 12. You're going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Verse 34, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. He will be your greatest treasure and pleasure in life. This is why the first century Christians succeeded in turning the Roman world upside down. It was not through their politics, but through gospel proclamation and demonstration. By the way, if you have not gone through the Game of Life yet, the Game of Life class yet, you need to go through that. How many by show of hands have gone through the Game of Life here? Game of Life, okay. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, that's your next step. If you're gonna hang out here with us, all roads go through the Game of Life. I have the privilege of teaching that class. That will teach you what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. It'll actually give you this idea of what is, it, what is this fullness of life, this quantity and quality of life that he gives us and full devotion to Christ, which are one and the same pursuit. God's glory, our joy, one and the same. We talk about that in the class and we walk you through the 5G process of, of discipleship. I would encourage you to take that class. The class is gonna be offered here in, uh, as soon as we hit the fall, which is somewhere around December. Okay, no. Actually, uh, it's kind of our fall class, but fall doesn't actually happen for a long time here. But it's actually end of the summer, kind of heading into the fall. It starts uh, Tuesday, September the 12th. So about a month from now, 6.30 to 8.30, Tuesday nights, there will be childcare. And Game of Life starts Tuesday. That's for eight weeks. I'd encourage you to sign up for that. So that's the first that's the first, how to live ready. Be found doing what he told you to do. Are you a disciple? Are you helping to make disciples as we are together here at Desert Breeze? And do you understand what that means? Radical loyalty to Christ, radical discernment, radical generosity, radical awareness of future joy and justice, all for God's glory. Here's the next one, number two. Let eternal reality affect your life more than the temporal. Verse 35b, keep your lamps burning. What does that mean? Keep your lamps burning. Once again, Scripture is the best commentary for Scripture. Verse 37, he says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So keeping your lamps burning means you're awake. He finds you awake spiritually. Verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So, so at nighttime, what do we do? We're supposed to, we're supposed to sleep. As you get as old as I, you don't sleep so well at night anymore, okay? So you've got to work a little bit harder to sleep, but that's what you're supposed to do at nighttime. The age between Jesus' first and second coming is dark spiritually. It it's actually would be classified as nighttime uh, biblically and based on these parables here. And it is a time that actually makes it easy for people to go to sleep spiritually. And Jesus is saying that his servants will stay awake and keep their lamps burning. What does it mean to get sleepy? What does it mean to get sleepy? I didn't appreciate what Pastor Scott said, that the reason why we keep it so cold in here is to keep you awake. That's, that was very hurtful. Because he's assuming that somehow you guys struggle falling asleep while I'm teaching. So we got to keep the temperature, you got to keep the temperature like at about 60 in here just to keep you. And I have to, I have to honestly say, you are a little bit perkier when it is colder in here, okay? <laughs> and so I appreciate that. But I like to believe that it's because you really are interested in what we're talking about, okay? So don't you dare fall asleep here this morning. In fact, let me, let me make sure, okay, any, how about you guys? Okay. Let me, do we need to turn that temperature down a little bit more? Okay, no, we won't do that. We won't do that. Okay. So where was I? 
Okay, we were somewhere here. So, oh, what does it mean to get sleepy? What does it mean to get sleepy? Physically, it means you're going to crash your car if you get sleepy while you're driving. Okay, that's what that means. It actually means to be out of touch with reality, that you're more affected by dreams. Dreams become more real than, than reality. That's physically. But how about spiritually? What happens when you become sleepy spiritually? You are affected by temporal rather than the eternal reality. So when you become sleepy spiritually, you're affected by, the, by temporal rather than the eternal reality. Romans 13, 11 says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to you now than when we first believed. Ephesians 5, 14, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let me give you another illustration here. Let's say that you spend a week, because they're, they're remodeling your house, and so you spend a week at a Motel 6, God forbid. <laughs> I know, I could pick a better one, but I wanted to use Motel 6, okay? It's not, not a very good hotel. By the way, if you own any stock in Motel 6, I'm sorry, I apologize for that. Your stock won't decrease too much. But let's say that you spend a week at a Motel 6, how likely would it be for you to take all of your time and money and spend it decorating your motel room? How probable is it that you would clean out your bank account and purchase Van Gogh's or paintings of Elvis on velvet or whatever it might be that you like and begin to hang it in your motel room? Not very likely, okay? I mean, I mean you wouldn't even be tempted because the motel room is not your home. In fact, you don't even want to walk on the carpet because you're like, oh my goodness, this place is so gross. I didn't need to say that either, did I? You ever go into hotel rooms or motel rooms sometimes? You go, oh my goodness, this is scary. Okay. And so you're only going to be there a little while. It would be foolish to waste the treasure on your one and only life, you know, all that God has given you on a one and only life, that, on a temporary residence. To, to spend all of your time, your talent, your treasure, your life that he has given to you to steward and you spend it all on some temporary residence. That's a little bit of what he's talking about here. Let eternal reality affect your life more than the temporal. Keep your lamps burning. Stay awake spiritually. So you are sleepy when you lay up treasure for yourself and you are not rich toward God. We talked about that. You'll have to listen to the message from last week, the rich fool. That's Luke 12, 21. When you, when you put more emphasis on the temporal than you do on the eternal, you're living more for the temporal than the eternal. You are sleepy when, when your boss, your spouse, your coworkers, your, your enemy, your in-laws, maybe enemy and in-laws are one and the same, I don't know, but... But what they say about you is more important to you than what the God of the galaxies has said about you. Someone criticizes you and you just have a meltdown or you have a blow up. And you're, you're not living in touch with the reality. You're spiritually sleepy. You're not living in touch with the reality that God has said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are sleepy when you are always happy. If you're a Christian, you're always happy, you're out of touch with reality. Did you know that? This world's too busted up for you just to go around all the time. Woohoo! I got Jesus in my life and everything's just wonderful. No, everything isn't wonderful, okay? 
There are times you just get the living daylights beat out of you. That's just, that's reality. And, and by the way, you are sleepy when you are happy. You are always happy, but you are sleepy when you're always sad. Oh my goodness. If you're always sad, you're out of touch with reality. See, that's why it tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, 10, sorrowful, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As believers in Christ, we ought to be the saddest bunch of people in the world when it comes to the brokenness and the fallenness of this world because we ought to be in touch with it and go, oh my goodness, this is devastating. And yet the, the most joy-filled people in this world because of the hope that we have in Jesus. That's great psychology. So there's this balance we're working through. You're gonna grieve like crazy and yet in the midst of that grief, you're gonna embrace a greater reality and that's Jesus, his joy. But you don't deny that. He's with us through that as we navigate through life. You are sleepy when you get more joy thumbing through your favorite magazine or watching your favorite TV show than reading, studying, meditating on God's word, than spending time with God and knowing him. You, you, you're sleepy spiritually. You're sleepy spiritually when you are more comforted by thoughts of vacation than thoughts of meeting God face to face on that great day. When you stand before your maker, and look into his eyes and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So, so where, how, do we, how do we get that? Well, well, to keep your lamp burning, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to really understand the, the motivation of why you're doing it. Here's the next part. Why should we live ready? Why should we live ready? This is the motivation for your life. And he gives it to us in a negative and a positive. We've already talked about the negative. We talked about the positive too. But let's kind of wrap it up so we really can understand this text. Uh, number one, so why should we live ready? Number one, if you're not found living ready, you will be devastated. That's the big idea here. You're gonna be devastated. Verses 45 through 48. So verse 45, you got the defiant servant who abuses the other servants, lives a life of gluttony and drunkenness, Verse 46, the master will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful unbelievers. By the, by the way, the unfaithful literally means unbelievers. Verse 47, you got the distracted servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. Verse 48, the darkened servant who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Now, here's the, here's the difficulty as I studied this. I, I asked myself the question, who is he talking about here? That's what Peter was asking. Is he talking about believers or unbelievers? Is he talking about, uh, and, and that's, oftentimes that's our response. He's saying, wait, 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 he's talking about, and I think that I, I read a couple uh, theologians, highly recommended theologians, and one went one way, one went the other way. One said, he's talking about believers, and the other one said, no, he's talking about unbelievers. Let me give you the argument in the direction of unbelievers here. But, it, but by the way, that does not let us off the hook as if we're believers, okay? I'm, I'm just telling you right, right up front because we're gonna get to that in just a moment. And it's pretty intense. But uh, I, I believe he's putting all of these in that same category that he put this guy who laid up treasure for himself and then was not rich toward God in Luke 12, 21, the rich fool. Everyone has been given the stewardship of time, talent, and treasure, Every one of us, everybody on this planet has been given the stewardship of life, time, talent, treasure, all that, that God has given us, all that we have has been given by God, as we talked about last week. And everybody is in this parable somewhere, both believers and non-believers. And I'm taking the approach that these are unbelievers. The believers are pictured by the faithful and the unbelievers are pictured by the unfaithful. Now you may be thinking, wait, 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 wait a minute. How, how can you be a servant of the master if you're, if you're not a believer, because 
in verse 46, he says, I'm going to put him with the unfaithful, which is literally the unbelievers. So, so how can you be a servant of the master if you're not a believer? Not all people are children of God by salvation, but all people are children of God by creation and ultimately accountable to God. In that, God is master of us all. And so we are his servants. What this teaching is, is telling us is that, that, eternal, that eternal judgment will have degrees of punishment. Did you notice the defiant, the distracted, the darkened? Meted out to each one of them was different in, in the punishment that they received. Heaven and hell are God's two eternal solutions to the problem of evil. That, that by, by the way, man caused that. We caused that because of our rejection of a holy God. Heaven will have degrees of reward. Hell will have degrees of, of punishment. If, if sin, and we defined sin earlier through the New Catechism, New City Catechism, if sin is saying to God, leave me alone, then hell is God saying, okay, for all eternity. Now, as he talks about this, you know, being beaten and cut up and all that, this is an, analo an analogy. It's, he's trying to point, a, point out that this is devastating. This will devastate us to stand before our creator, even as an unbeliever, and to experience that. As believers, though, uh, we're not off the hook, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but let me, let me just give you a, a quick quote. This was from a teaching that we did a number of years ago over at San Day O'Connor High School, and you won't be able to get it to going online on our website, but you'll have to get it if you have the DB app, and it was a series we did, Doubts and Answers, and, and we answered the question, can a loving God send people to hell? Let me just give you just a quick quote from that study that we did at that time. When you lessen the penalty for a wrong, you lessen the seriousness of of the wrong and you lessen the value of the person wronged. For instance, in um, murder in some countries carries little consequence. They throw you in there for a year and you're out. But you murdered my family member and they're out after a year. I mean, we'd be appalled by that here in America, and we are. When a murder gets away, you know, someone, someone gets away with murder, okay, you have a family member that's murdered and the judge says, oh, we'll just overlook it. We'll give them six months. What does that say about what he did and what he did to the person that he murdered and to you as a family member? When you lessen the penalty for a wrong, you lessen the seriousness of the wrong and you lessen the value of the person wronged. See, a sin against an infinite being, which is treason, is an infinite sin and therefore has infinite consequences. I had this discussion just recently with a guy that was a Christian, been a Christian for many years, and he says, I just, I just don't really buy that whole eternal damnation, and he, he was almost kind of, I said, wait, 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 dude. I said, do you, do you understand who God is? You got a small view of God. You don't understand his holiness. You don't understand your own sinfulness. Oh, my goodness. You're treading on thin ice. That's frightening to even think about See, by denying hell's reality, you demean God's holiness and justice and lower the stakes of redemption, minimizing Christ's work on the cross. Why is the cross so horrible? It's because that was our sinfulness. That's the payment. He came to bear our judgment. And the second time around, second coming, he will bring judgment. 
You have no idea what Christ has done for you and how much he loves you until you understand the doctrine of hell. And then you begin to realize, oh my goodness, that's, that's where that unspeakable and glorious joy comes from. Oh my goodness, God, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for redeeming me. And so, if we put these people in the category of unbelievers, what about us believers? Well, let me read to you. That doesn't get us off the hook because uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 15, uh, 3, 10 through 15. Let me read. Okay, you guys still with me? Okay, cool. You guys with me? So let me read, let me read this text here to you because this is for us believers. And verse 10, he says, according to the grace of God, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So we got the foundation of Christ, but what are we building upon that foundation? Let each one take care how he builds upon it. In other words, live ready. Do what he told you to do. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. There's only one way that we can get saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. Ultimately, if we're going to get to heaven, if we want to have a relationship with God, it's through Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So he's using this analogy. What are you building? You got the foundation of Christ. Okay, you committed your life to Christ, but what now are you building? What does your life look like? What kind of materials are you using? And then verse 13 says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Fire judgment. This is called the Bema seat where we stand before Christ, that is those of us that are believers and give an account of our lives. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. While our salvation in Christ assures us that our sins can't bring us into ultimate condemnation, Romans 8.1, it also means that with our greater spiritual resources, God holds us more responsible for living as he prescribed. Now listen. Don't think for one moment that you can commit your life to Christ and then screw your life away. And then somehow when you take your last breath on earth, you take your first breath in heaven and come dancing into heaven and celebrate for all eternity. There will be a time, though you are saved, and that will never be taken from you, but as a believer in Jesus Christ, you will stand before God and give an account of your life. And I'm telling you, it's not gonna go well for many. And I don't wanna be a part of that. And I don't want you to be a part of that. Your works may be burned up. And I actually believe when the Bible talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think there's gonna be a little bit of that weeping and gnashing. When we stand before the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without us, and we took our life and we wasted it, and then we come running into heaven thinking, woohoo, wait a minute, wait a minute. You took what I gave you and you threw it away. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why would anybody do that? I don't want you to do that. I don't want to do that. 
I don't want us to do that because this is what we want. We want to we want to be celebrated. That's the next point in your notes. If you're found living ready, you will be celebrated. That's what we want. That's what I want for you to be celebrated. Verse 37. This, I mean, this is spectacular what, what we read here. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. This is Jesus. He's gonna serve us in the great feast in heaven. Verses 34, 43 through 44. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. I mean, this is wealth beyond measure, what he's going to give to us in heaven as he rewards us. Oh, my goodness. Oh, this is amazing. This is an astonishing truth. This is saying that if you live ready, if you stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, Jesus Christ himself will focus all of his infinite and eternal power to heal, to make whole, to satisfy, and give you a fullness of joy that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can even imagine. That's what's in store for us. That's what's in store for us. I mean, if the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who can scatter stars like we scatter sand through our fingers takes all of his power and brings it to bear on making you happy, what kind of job do you think he can do for all eternity? This is what... These verses are telling us and what we're in for, nothing less. I've been reflecting on Romans 5, 5 here just the last 24 hours or so. Just amazing verse. It says, God's love has, has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now listen to me. Uh, his love, if you're a follower of Christ, listen to me. It's because his love has been poured out into your heart through the Holy Spirit. You know what he's saying? Poured out into our heart? through the Holy Spirit. You know what the Bible says about God's love in uh, Psalm 63.3? His love is better than life. There's nothing in life that compares to his, his love. So there should be moments in your life in time before eternity, moments when you are intoxicated by his love, when you're overwhelmed by his love. The most rapturous delights we have ever had in this life are a dim glimpse to the bottomless ocean of love and joy we have in Christ. I've been reading, and I love reading from a lot of the dead, dead theologians. I've been reading from Augustine, St. Augustine. Listen to what he says. You guys with me? Okay. Listen to what he says. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. He's speaking to God. This is part of his confessions to God. Who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. He's talking to God. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. Oh, Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation. See, Augustine lived a very promiscuous life B.C., before Christ. So Augustine had a sip of wine, and he said, that's good, but not as good as you are. Augustine had sex, and he said, that's good, but not as good as you are. Augustine had wealth, and he said, that's good, but not, doesn't even come close to, to you, God. I mean, this is what he's saying. You who are sweeter than all pleasures, you who are sweeter than all pleasures, not just you who are sweeter than all suffering, that makes sense. No, you're better than the best life has 
to offer. I was reading uh, this morning another statement from his confessions. Oh, that you would enter my heart and make it intoxicated so that I might forget all woes and embrace you, my only good. So here's, my, here's what I'm trying to get across. Do you have those experiences here in this life that you are intoxicated by his love, you are overwhelmed by his love? And if you are, that's an appetizer of what you're going to experience feasting in his kingdom for all eternity. The bottomless ocean of love and joy we have in Christ in this life are appetizers from the great table that Jesus Christ himself will serve. The appetizers of the Holy Spirit's power, intimacy with him, clean conscience, boldness, freedom, contentment, I mean the list goes on. These appetizers are so intoxicating and so life transforming. I mean what must the main course be like? We have to live our lives in light of that. Now, some of you are probably saying, man, I don't, I don't know if I've ever been intoxicated by the love of God. Well, come back next week. Because we're gonna talk about how you can have that and experience that more. It's through repentance. And you probably don't really even understand what repentance is about. We're gonna talk about it next week. Here's the last point in your notes. Almost finished. To whom much is given, much is required. It's our beliefs that determine our eternal destination, heaven or hell. So it's your acceptance or rejection of Jesus and it's our behavior that determines our eternal compensation, rewards in heaven or punishment in hell. Look at that last statement on your notes. This one statement, one quick story, and then prayer, and we'll be finished. If there is no judgment, what hope is there for the world? Did you know that? What hope is there for this world if there's no judgment, if there's no final judgment, if there's not at some point in history where God balances the book, settles the score, and makes things right? People get away with murder. Who cares? Might as well live however we want to live. But there is a judgment. But if there is a judgment, what hope is there for us? Because we're all fallen, we're all broken, we're all sinners. In Jesus' first coming, he came to bear our judgment. In his second coming, he will bring judgment. That's verses 49 and 50. So a wise person will settle his bad case that will go against him before he is judged. That's verses 47, 57 through 59. How? By grace through faith in the person and work of Christ. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Three apprentice devils who are coming to earth to finish their apprenticeship, and they were talking to Satan, and they said, um, you know, we want to go down and ruin men. And so Satan said, well, what's your plan? And the first devil said, I'm going to tell them there's no God. Well, that will not delude many, he said, because they know there's a God. And the second said, well, I'm, I'm going to tell men there's no hell. And Satan said, well, You'll deceive few that way. They know there's a punishment for sin. The third one said, I'll tell men there's no hurry. And Satan said, go, you have found success. There is a hurry. There is a hurry. He's coming and you don't know when. Give your life to him and live ready. Let's pray. So, Father God, I, I pray that sleepy Christians would wake up. And those who don't know you would place their faith in the finished work of Christ Jesus before it's too late. And Father, we, we eagerly await the fullness of your kingdom. We long for every tear to be dried. We groan for the day when we no longer struggle with our sin. 
Let the sure hope of everlasting life give us courage to face the trials and temptations of this life as we live ready for your return. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray in your beautiful and holy name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.